So good morning. It is great to see you guys here and welcome online also. Thank you for praying for Arlene and me. We were uh, in Austria. I was lecturing at a Bible school there and then involved with a conference. Somebody asked me, how was your vacation? I said, good thing Arlene didn't hear you say that because I think I lectured 13 times in five days and hustled back here for a board meeting, but it, it was awesome. In fact, some people from Austria have joined us online th this morning. But I am really glad to be back, and I'm glad to be back because of this journey that we're in the midst of. If you're new to Northland, we're right on the cusp of a, of a, of a transition time, a season in which we're embarking into some new water. We're figuring out how to do that together and to lead us along the way, we're looking to the Apostle Paul, who wrote a letter to the Philippians and the Northlandians. The Philippians were about 2,000 years ago. The Northlandians are now. That's us. And Paul wrote this letter to them, the dominant theme of which is joy. Now, there are many other themes, but going back to the joy of the gospel, which is why we're calling this series this gigantic secret of joy. It's based on a quote by G.K. Chesterton who says, the Christians has a gigantic secret and it's the secret of knowing joy in the midst of all circumstances. Joy isn't a plastic smile, it's not a syrupy feeling, it can happen with tears running down our cheeks, but it's a deep confidence that Jesus is enough. Whatever your circumstance, Paul says rejoice. Now he's got credibility to say that because he's writing from prison, from a first century house arrest, chained 24 hours a day, seven days a week situation. So there's credibility. I need to listen to that. How do I whistle in the dark? How do I embrace that joy? And we looked a few weeks ago at an overview, looking at chapter one, two, three, and four, and to kind of just to give us some hooks to go through. How do I choose joy? I've got to embrace gospel, a gospel priority in my life, which it enables me to, to live my life revolving around Jesus. Instead of expecting him to revolve around me is I do my own thing. He's my good luck charm. That's not the gospel. Instead of that, it's Jesus, I want to revolve around you. I want to be involved in, in what you're involved with. Now we're about to shift from chapter one to chapter two. Now Paul didn't write in chapters and verses, but Philippians is divided up pretty well to see some, some overall themes. In chapter two is Along with that gospel priority comes a gospel community that I participate in. Not just revolving around Jesus, but reflecting him to you. Now, something very deep here. Uh, chapter 2 comes after chapter 1. I know that's deep. Now, here's something even more profound. The end of chapter 1 comes before the beginning of chapter 2. So let me read where we finished last week at the end of chapter 1 of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since, now he's 800 miles away from Philippi, but Epaphroditus has come to him from that church to give him a gift. He sends this letter back to them. He's told them about what's happening. They're going through some tough stuff. He says, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I, shall, that, that I still have. In other words, I know you got struggles. We all do as long as we're, if you're not in the midst of a struggle now, cheer up. It'll probably happen this week. So that's the nature of living in a fallen world. We go from struggle to struggle. The key is not trying to manipulate our circumstances and get to that magical point where we don't have struggle. That's impossible in a fallen world. The key is let's learn to relate with Jesus, to revolve around Jesus, to reflect Jesus, to rely on Jesus in the midst of the struggle. But we do it together. The struggle is real. 
But Paul is about to move us into chapter 2 where he talks about engage with the struggle together. I remember it was on my mother's birthday a number of years ago. Andrew, our oldest son, uh, Arlene was pregnant with him as well. And those who did, I wasn't involved in what I'm about to tell you. I just read it and I remember when it was because of those events. It was regarding a car accident in Kansas City, Missouri. It was on September the 5th. Fourteen people were jammed into a mid-sized car. They plunged off of a cliff, went 70 feet, end over end. It landed at the bottom of this cliff. They lay, the car landed on all four tires, upright. And incredibly, no one was hurt. Three adults, 11 children. In fact, not only were they not hurt, they were barely scratched. And the investigators uh, tried to figure out how did that happen. The conclusion they came to, the reason that they survived it so well is that there were so many people packed in the car. 14 people. They couldn't move. They couldn't be jostled about. They cushioned the this, this struggle for one another. Paul is about to bring up that, that mentality of saying, you know what, this struggle is real, but let's engage with it together. And so he says, right after what we just read about struggle, he starts verse 1 of chapter 2 with a therefore, a then, as a result of, so, it, so he says, therefore, verse 1, Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He says, engage with the gospel together. Engage, whatever your struggle is, come together. I've entitled this message, Joy is Plural, because yes, you and I can experience joy in our walk with Christ on a personal level, and Christianity is immensely personal, but it's not private. Our joy is experienced exponentially when we engage in community. David Brooks, in his book, Social Animal, quotes uh, Robert Provine, who, a researcher from the University of Maryland, who said, you're, more, you're 30 times more likely to laugh when you're with people than when you're alone. 30 times. Now, Paul's not talking about superficial laughter. He's talking about deep abiding gospel joy, but the principle is still the same. And he actually says something really unique. He says, make my joy complete. It's the only time in the letter that he, he hints at, you know what, my joy is impacted by something other than my, my, me, me walking uh, with, with Christ. And he says, make my joy complete. Now, he doesn't say, uh, I don't have any joy without this. He's just, that, that word means fill it up. Add to the joy I've already got. We need to understand that our relationships can bring great grief to our journeys, but also great joy. And he says the great joy happens when we start learning to do this thing together. A couple of years ago, I was speaking at a conference in Seattle, Washington. I finished my last session, and I had the Uber driver take me to the University of Washington. And I wanted to go to the Shell House. You like this prop? 
this was, this was a bear getting on the plane. Um, just kidding. You guys know what a shell is? If there was a young lady who, Lyman High School has a great crew team, great rowing team. And she knew right away what a shell is. She was here at the first service. A shell is a boat. In the shell house where they stored these boats, there is a dining hall for the athletes. And I'd heard about it. And I wanted to see this boat that I had read about. It's hanging from the rafters in the dining hall in the University of Washington athletic shell house. And this boat is significant. Now, way I, the reason I found out about the boat is because one of my small group communities is a book club. We read books together. One of the books that we read together is a book by Daniel Brown called Boys in the Boat. And it's about the crew team from the University of Washington back in the 1930s. A bunch of farm boys who got together and learned how to row together in such a way that they ended up winning the 1936 Olympics in front of Hitler beating Germany and Italy. That boat that I was looking at, I just spent some time, I just sat there and, and looked at it, looked at a lot of the things on the wall and the plaques and so forth. The boat's about 62 feet long, weighs about 211 pounds, eight rowers sit in it, and then one guy up front who has a megaphone that helps them stay in rhythm. That boat that I was looking at that's hanging in the rafters is the boat that they were in to win the Olympics in six minutes and 25 seconds, one second ahead of Germany. It was designed and built by a genius named George Pocock. And George Pocock is, was an Englishman. He built boats for people all over the country, but he lived there in Seattle. And he built this boat with great care. And he knew over time, he got to know the University of Washington rowers, members of that crew. They've got a portrait of Pocock there in the dining hall. And in the book, Dan Brown quotes George Pocock saying, rowing is an art. There's something beautiful that happens. And this is, uh, let me read you a little a section from the, boat about, from the book about what he says about George Polk. Is that okay if I read you a section? Okay. Even if you don't want me to. They, they, <laughs> I've got the mic, and unless the sound guys think otherwise, and don't you guys dare turn, turn me off. George Polk learned much about the hearts and souls of young men. And as I'm reading, I want you to think about us being together in a kingdom boat. I want you to have this image, and I, I'm, I'm praying this image never leaves you. Over the years, he saw successive classes of oarsmen come and go. And he learned to see hope where a boy thought there was no hope, to see skill where skill was obscured by ego or anxiety. He observed the fragility of confidence and the redemptive power of trust. He detected the strength of the gossamer threads of affection that sometimes grew among a boatload of young men striving honestly to do their best. And he came to understand how those almost mystical bonds of trust and affection between nine rowers, if nurtured, might lift a crew above the ordinary sphere, transport it to a place where nine boys somehow became one thing. 
a thing that could not quite be defined, a thing that was so in tune with the water and the earth and the sky above that, as they rode, effort was replaced by ecstasy. And that's the quote I want you to remember. He said they'd get to a point where effort would be replaced by ecstasy. He said so it was a rare thing, a sacred thing, a thing devoutly to be hoped for. Oh, they had to work. They had to apply much effort. But on the other side of that effort, when they finally got it, when they finally came together as a crew, that effort was replaced by ecstasy, by joy, by this magical cooperation in rhythm with one another. When they're starting to move as one thing, that's what Paul's talking about in these four verses. He's saying coming together, and it's going to take effort, it's going to take concentration, but there's joy on the other side of that. Northland is at a critical point in its journey. You're part of that. We're, head, we're in the midst of some choppy waters. We're heading into some new water that's exciting, but we better figure out how to row together. And that's what Paul is exhorting the Philippians to do. He's saying, guys, there's joy in a plurality of doing this thing together. But we got to learn it. So how do we learn it? In those four verses, he gives four ingredients. Four ingredients for a small group, for a ministry team, for a staff team, for a work team, for a family. Four ingredients, that all of which together will lead us to joy, to lead us to this ecstasy. Not just ecstasy of a crew rowing through some water, but some kingdom followers rowing through kingdom water for the glory of the king. And there's a lot more at stake than Olympic gold medal here. What are the four ingredients? Let's look at them one at a time, and I'm going to connect the word ecstasy, ecstatic, with each of these four words. I'm just liking that word this week because of, we don't use it that much, and that's some of what Paul is talking about. Here are the four ingredients. They're all related. You're really not going to have one without the other, but let's look at them one at a time, going through each of these four verses. The first in verse 1, we've got to embrace, we've got to learn to engage with ecstatic grace. Ecstatic grace. Grace is God treating us not as we deserve, but as we need. It's Him lavishing us with His love, lavishing us with His forgiveness, lavishing us with His calling. It's Him, it, Babette's feast, kind of just extravagantly dumping blessings on us. Go back to verse 1. Therefore, he says, okay, you're in the midst of this struggle. If you're going to learn to do this, you got to, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. I love this. Instead of this trite little, hey, guys, get along. He appeals to who they are as the people of God. He, appear, he appeals to you and to you and to me and to you. And he says, does the gospel mean anything to you? Has the gospel had an impact on you? Have you tasted ex extravagant grace to the point that you now are living a life of ecstatic grace, deeply grateful? Go back to phrase by phrase. Look at those. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
You know what? We all know what it's like to be with a group of people who are encouraged by being united with Christ. We know the difference between that and being with a group of people who, are, who get together religiously on a Sunday. It's two different things. Men and women who get grace, who own their brokenness and their sin, but who equally embrace the gospel and the forgiveness that's been lavished on us. And it's a daily renewal where I say, this is too good to be true. It's why it's called the gospel. He says, if any comfort from his love, that next phrase. If you, he said, Paul says, and he, when he says if, he's assuming it, he's saying since. He's appealing to them. Have you, have you received any comfort from his love? That is our comfort. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, it's our only hope in life and death. There's the phrase, you hear me talk about it, hurt people hurt people, it's true. But the opposite is also true. Loved people love people. And you show me a group of religious people that are not loving each other, it's a dead giveaway that they're not embracing the love of the Father for them. I, there, it's no way that I can be basking in the love of God for me and not giving that love away. He keeps going. If any common sharing in the Spirit, so when I trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence in me. When you trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence in you. We are the body of Christ, His Spirit dwelling within each of us. We have a commonality together. You're unique, you're different from me, and you're very glad for that. I'm different from you. But together, inhabited by the Spirit, there's, there's something that brings us together. And the next phrase, if any tenderness and compassion Are you living like loved people, he said. I mean, this is reminiscent of what Jesus says in John 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. But then he doesn't say, hey, you figure it out. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He gives us the love to give away. He says, hey, this is what I'm telling you to do, but I'll pay the bill. I'm going to give you what you need to give away. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So for us to be in a boat rowing away, this kingdom boat, it's going to involve us together embracing ecstatic grace, getting the gospel, rehearsing the gospel, getting deeper in the gospel, being gripped by the gospel, celebrating the gospel. And that's starting to bring us together in such a way, Jesus said, that the world will say, look at how those guys are rowing. But it's not just ecstatic servanthood that's going to be involved in this team. It's the second ingredient, ecstatic unity. Ecstatic unity. We get to do this together. It's not just about me and Jesus. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's not just about coming to church for an hour and a half on a weekend when it's convenient, staring at the back of somebody else's head and then going, going home. This is a powerful time for us to celebrate large community. But then it's in smaller contexts when we're learning to relate with each other in ecstatic grace, but ecstatic unity. Go back to the text, look at verse two. Then he says, make my joy complete, there's that phrase, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of and of one mind. 
what he's doing is, Epaphroditus obviously has conveyed to him, hey, there's some things, things going on. It, it always happens when you get people together. There's some stuff going on in terms of their community. Maybe nothing full-blown conflict-wise, but as Moses Silva, a New Testament scholar, says, maybe some, some, weed, some weed seeds had been planted. Maybe there's a guy named Aristophilus, perhaps, at Philippi, and uh, maybe a woman named Prisca. And they were struggling. They weren't experiencing the, the level of joy that they felt like they should be and that Paul's talking about. And now they're getting a clue as to why. Maybe our lack of joy is connected with our lack of rowing together. Paul's using a literary device here. I love this. In between what we know is verse 1 and verse 2. I say what we know as because we've added the verse numbers. But he's making two statements. First statement's in verse 1. Second statement's in verse 2. Let's say you and I are camping. I could tell you about some needs that I've got, and uh, I could say, hey, I'm hungry. Would you mind get, getting me some food? I'm cold. Could you get me a coat? I'm thirsty. Could you get me some water? I'm dirty. Could you get me some soap? That would be one way to say it. The other way to say it is I just tell you, say what I need in the first sentence. Hey, I'm hungry and I'm cold and I'm thirsty and I'm dirty. That's sentence one. Sentence two is, would you mind getting me some food? Would you mind getting me some water? Would you mind getting me a coat? Would you mind getting me some soap? That's what Paul is doing in this sentence. Here we go. So in the, first ver in the first statement, he's saying, are you engaging with the gospel? And he uses these phrases. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, he keeps going in verse 1, and he says, uh, if any common sharing in the spirit, and if he ten any tenderness and compassion. Now in verse 2, he comes back to those same four themes, but he says, do it together. Look how they pair up. In verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he says, be like-minded. If any comfort from his love, have the same love. Do unpack this love together. Uh, any common sharing in the Spirit, he says, be one in spirit. If the Holy Spirit dwells within all of you, then you be in step with one another in spirit. And if any tenderness and compassion, be of one mind. He says, do this thing together. That's where the joy comes from. That's where the strength comes from. You guys ever seen a, uh, a group of geese flying up? I, I'm saying group because last night I said flock, and man, I got in trouble. It's not a flock. What, what is it when a group of geese are together? Yeah, gaggle, but that's only part of the answer. I'm about to change your life here. So gaggle is when a group of geese is together on the ground. Stein is when they're flying in formation. A pump is when they're together tightly in formation. The, the discouraging thing is, is that's what you're going to remember from the message later today. <laughs> you're going to be talking at lunch, and here I've been pouring my heart out about us getting together in this kingdom opportunity, and you're going to be talking about gaggle. What a funny word that is for geese. But anyway, when you see the geese flying in V formation, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You see them up there, they're flying in V formation. Some researchers at Caltech did some aerodynamic studies and determined that a group of 25 geese flying in formation can fly 70% further than one goose flying alone. It's because that lead goose sets some, an aerodynamic uh, uh, kind of grease in the skid, so to speak, gets tired, comes to the back of the line, another one goes up. They can go 75% further. Paul is saying, guys, do it together. 
experienced not just ecstatic grace, experienced ecstatic grace together by walking together in unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul's, Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus. What do you think that means? You know what I think it means? I think it means make every effort <laughs> to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How much effort? Every effort. And he's not saying you need to achieve unity. And here's the power of the body of Christ. We're all, we already have a commonality because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within each of us. So there's already a unity there. Our job is to keep the unity. It's not to achieve it. So how do we keep the unity? By, by getting everybody to agree with us? No. By everybody looking alike? No. By everyone being in submission to the head. We're the body of Christ. He's our head. So chapter 1, Philippians, we all are revolving around him. There's a lordship issue. There's a submission issue. Jesus is calling the shots. So I'm now humbling myself. And now I, I do it together. I'm reflecting him to you as a result of revolving around Christ. We're revolving around the head. In Brown's book, he talks about these nine members of this crew team. Are they all alike? No, you don't want them all alike. But they're together. He says, good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge, someone else to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight and someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow, all of this must mesh. There's a unity that happens. Not uniformity, we're different, but there's an ecstatic grace that we're unpacking together because of the gospel that then bleeds into, flows into an ecstatic unity. But it doesn't stop there. You go a little bit deeper. This third ingredient's got to be there. I'm going to call it ecstatic humility. And I'm loving putting those two words together because nobody ever puts those two words together. In our culture, humility, no, 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 it's not something ecstatic, it's joy giving. The Word of God says otherwise. The Word of God says, you want to know joy, learn humility. Because it's when I'm humble before God that I'm most receptive to what God wants to give me. And then I do that with you. You do it with me, we do it with one another. Go back to the text, look at verse three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What do you think he means by that? I think he means do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. You ever been in a group photo? All of us have. So let me ask you a question. How do you determine whether a group photo you're in is any good? Mm-hmm, yep, you're, you're trying to think of some really spiritual answer. You know 
what determines. Everybody else can have spinach on their teeth and stuff coming out of their ears and hair messed up, but if you're looking good, oh, this is a grape group shot. Let's frame that, right? And if everybody else looks great and you've got spinach on your teeth, I don't think this is, I just don't think this is a good group shot here. I, I, we're wired, that's how we're wired. You know, it's the Toby Keith theology of, uh, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, usually, but occasionally I want to talk about me. Me, 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 it's about me. And you get a bunch of me's together and all of a sudden it's chaos on that boat. It's going around in circles. There's no smooth gliding. You know, the course of a race, each of those oarsmen, they put their oar in the water about 300 times over the course of six and a half minutes. 2,400 total oar contacts with the water, and every one of them has got to be in unison. If one of them is off, if somebody gets a me thing going, all of a sudden things are disrupted. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You hear that? Have you ever known, have, I, have you ever seen a group of religious people calling themselves a church who were prideful? Yes. Do you know what Peter is saying? He says God's opposed to that church. Those are strong words. God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. In other words, don't wait for God to humble you. You humble yourself and say, God, I need you. We need you. This is a time for Northland to say, God, we need you. We have got a rich legacy, a rich history. But it's time to humble ourselves and say, we want to listen to you, our head, and we want to row together that he may lift you up in due time. You see, a lot of church people get together, and this whole selfish ambition thing that Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, we think, yeah, that'd probably be good, but, but we don't think it's that critical. All of us have sin lists in our mind. What are the biggies? Here's a sin list in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. And here's some, there's some biggies mentioned here. In fact, they're all biggies. Just church people sometimes don't think they all are. Listen to what's included together. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Man, we're all there. You know, all, all those things. Yeah, bad things. Now look what he's... He's including the same list. He's not taking a lunch break. He goes right into hatred discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Sound familiar? Dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Don't minimize this selfish ambition. It is deadly in a church boat, in a family boat, in a team boat and a staff team, and a work crew. Six verses later in Galatians 5, 25, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. He 
He says, guys, do this together. Do this together. One of the times in the book, uh, Brown reports that a, a reporter was interviewing the coach, and this is before the University of Washington team gelled. It, they were still in that effort stage. They're still learning the effort. It was on this side of the ecstasy. They hadn't clicked. And here's what the coach said to the reporter. The reporter didn't really pick up on it, but the team did. The coach said, there are more good individual men on this year's squad than on any I have ever coached. What did the crew pick up? What did these guys, the individual guys, he, the coach was not complimenting them. He was saying, there are some great individuals on this team. The problem is they're not rowing together. They're, they're individual agendas. You guys know what a VIP is, don't you? Very important person. So let's say you're in a ministry team or in a small group with nine other people. How many VIPs are in that group of nine? Mm, eight. That's what Paul's saying. You say, well, wait a minute. Well, I don't want to diminish me. You know what? Humble yourself. God will lift you up through the community. Oh, yeah, you'll be a VIP eight times over because all other eight people, if this is a healthy, biblically functioning community, the other eight people are looking at you as a VIP. There's a freedom in that. It's not, I'm, I'm not degrading myself. I am loved by, there's this ecstatic grace. I'm accepted in Christ. I'm beloved with Christ. I'm not trying to manipulate or slander others so I'll feel better about me. I'm treating others as better than myself. I'm, I'm treating you as a VIP. Which then leads to the fourth ingredient of this ecstatic, community of Christ followers that are going through not smooth water, but choppy water. And the choppier the water, the more critical it is for us to learn to row together. And it will involve ecstatic, embracing ecstatic grace, verse 1. It'll involve ecstatic uh, uh, unity, verse 2. It'll involve ecstatic humility, verse 3. Verse 4, it'll involve ecstatic servanthood. You talk about two words that don't come together. Ecstatic humility doesn't go together, but Neither does ecstatic servanthood in the world's eyes. But in Scripture, it says, Jesus says, you know what? Give up your life. That's when you'll find it. When you start focusing on others, look at verse 4. He says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. Not looking to your own interests. It's, this is reminiscent of what uh, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a given. We're, we're, we just as stewardship, we're going to be caring for our, our, ourselves. But Paul says, hey, listen, okay, get that taken care of, but now put others' interests over yours. I, a couple of months ago, I was at my mother's. Arlene and I were up there caring for her, and I told you a while back, she had a box she's been keeping for I don't know how many years. It was back in a shed. She said, go get it, some stuff from your childhood growing up. And I told you about a couple of the items that I found. What I didn't tell you about is something else I found. And there was a couple of programs from high school musicals. Here's a scary thought. I was in a couple of high school musicals. And one of them was to the musical Oklahoma. It was Rodgers and Hammerstein's very first musical that they wrote. I was, I, I, I was, I was Judd. 
for I just still remember them talking about poor Judd is dead. And um, I died, and it was very sad. Here's the bonus question. Anybody here know how the musical Oklahoma begins? We got a prize. Too bad you missed it. Here you go. Any takers? A guy named Curly, one of the stars. The musical opens with him singing a song. <clears throat> Just kidding, I, I won't sing it. <laughs> but hear the lyrics. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Oh, what a wonderful feeling. And here's why. Everything's going my way. That's what our default is in thinking. What's going to make me happy is everything going my way. Paul says, let me tell you what's going to really bring you joy. Is you not coming up saying, how's everything going to go my way? Me, you starting to say, and it's me looking at you thinking, I wonder how I can get things to go your way today. Yes, it's underneath Christ and underneath his leadership. We're going to unpack this more next week. But settle in on that it's not about my way, it's about Jesus' way and how Jesus' way impacts your way and then we'll see in the process how my way gets addressed and what blesses me. November 11th is a very, very special day to me for two reasons. Number one is my dad's birthday, he passed away years ago. And it's no accident that I just love that Veterans Day is on my dad's birthday. My dad served in the Air Force. My brother served in the Army. My son, my oldest son, Andrew, graduated from the Air Force Academy. He's currently stationed in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. And Andrew and I talked about it a lot, what he was doing. And he went into this commitment eyes wide open. In fact, you, if you ask him, sooner or later, he'll get to an analogy of he signed a blank check to his comrades, in arms to his family, to his community, to this nation. And that blank check can be cashed up to the point of requiring his life. And he willingly did it. And those of you who are veterans, thank you. You willingly did the same thing. Absolutely. But it's not just for veterans, it's not just for active military, it's for the body of Christ to say, I'm signing a check with my life for you. I want to lay down my life for you. Instead of competing with one another, against one another, we compete with one another in a cause that really matters. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly. Serve one another in love. Vladimir Dabokov was a Russian novelist back in the 40s and 50s. Dabokov uh, wrote Lolita and Pale Fire. There were a couple of his bestsellers. He was vacationing in Utah visiting a friend of his, Robert McLaughlin. He's a butterfly collector, Nabalkoff was. He was chasing a butterfly near a canyon. It was a gulch, a gorge. 
And there was a rare butterfly and he was going after it and he finally got it. He got back to the cabin and McLaughlin said, how was it? And, uh, and Nabokov said, it's fantastic. He told him about the butterfly. And then he said, kind of almost as a side comment, you know, I was over near that, that gorge and I heard, a, I heard somebody groaning from the bottom down near the stream. And his friend said, well, did, did you go check on him? He said, no, no. He said, well, why not? He said, I just told you. I got this rare butterfly. I, 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 I couldn't let the butterfly go. I, I would never have been able to find it again. The next day, they went down to the bottom of that gulch and discovered an old prospector who had died. He had died because somebody was chasing butterflies instead of caring about his need. And they renamed the gulch Dead Man's Gulch in commemoration of the selfishness of a Russian novelist. What butterflies are going on in your life? Or what butterflies are going on in mine? What butterflies am I chasing to the point that I'm ignoring you and ignoring us? May God enable this boat called Northland Church to be filled with people that are gripping their oars in an ecstatic fashion because of grace and in a context of unity, demonstrating humility and practicing servanthood. And let's see what Jesus does in fulfilling his promise and says, it's by your love for one another that this watching world will experience the reality of my love and know that you're my disciples. Let's stand together. And let me pray for you, and then we're going to proclaim this unfailing love that Jesus has lavished on us. We're going to proclaim it in such a way, realizing that if we get that love, that's when we pick up the oars and we give it away. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for, for loving us. Thank you for liberating us. Thank you for assembling us. Thank you for gathering us. Thank you for inhabiting us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for providing for us. And may we grasp your love that's rich, that's deep, that's wide. And may we bask in that unfailing love to the point that we start loving each other and loving this community and loving this world. And I pray this in the name of the one who loved us first. Amen.